Thanks for tuning into the Texas Family Law Podcast, where we provide you tips and insight to help you navigate divorce and child custody situations. This is Brian Walters. And I'm Jake Gilbreth. We are the managing partners at Walters Gilbreth PLLC with offices in Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And we're both board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Your hosts are broadcasting from the Lone Star State of Texas, where both have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates, both inside and outside the courtroom. So this week, we're going to talk about a smaller topic, but an important one and something that we get asked about uh, quite a bit, and that's how you keep your divorce information confidential. In, in the overall process and the filings and, and what have you. I was having this discussion the other day with the client, actually, because I think what people not necessarily forget, what they're just not aware of is a divorce is a lawsuit. A child custody case is a lawsuit. And lawsuits filed in the state of Texas are public information. I can go down to the courthouse and Brian rear ends me on the highway and I sue him for it. Then there'd be a lawsuit out there and the district clerk of wherever county our lawsuit was in that says Jake Sue and Brian for for rearing him on the highway. This is what he alleges happens and this is the range of his damages and that's all public information. Now it's there's not a lot of people hanging out at the courthouse or the district clerk's office pulling filings every single day trying to figure out who's suing who, but it is something that's out there and we try to remind people, particularly as things move online, it's more and more access is available online to at least be able to pull the pleadings. Obviously, stuff that's exchanged amongst the law firms like Discovery and stuff that's not filed with the court remains with the lawyers, but the actual pleadings that are filed in the divorce, the actual divorce decree, those are all public record. And a lot of people don't want their divorce decree out there being pulled by their neighbors or by a coworker or somebody that just happens to be too nosy. Again, it doesn't happen much, but it's out there. And it's something that we do have a discussion with clients about how to address that. So Brian, if I don't if I don't want anybody pulling up my divorce decree or pull up my child custody order or my pleadings or anything, where are the options available for me? The most common one is to seal the file either in, during the case or at the end of it, which is a, you'd have to file a motion and get a court to agree to that. And that's been something of a moving target. I think there's different standards in, among different judges and and different counties about the practice of that, but that's the the most common way you would stop there being access to any part of the file. There's some other things you might be able to do that are related to access of particular parts of it, which we can talk about after that, but that's the most common uh, way to address that. Yeah, that's a rules of civil procedure 76A talks about sealing the court records. I think a lot of practitioners forget about that or they don't give that option to their client. And I think you're right, Brian. I think there's county to county, different judges have different attitudes about it. And even then, sometimes it's judge to judge. I know in Travis County, for example, a few years ago, there was a judge who's now retired, but wouldn't sign order sealing. Even if any of everybody showed up and said, look, we're agreeing, we want this sealed, he just wouldn't do it. His, his view was it's open records and the public has the right to access these records just like anybody else in absence of a really compelling reason. It's not going to do it. And then there's other judges that just sign on with the attitude of like, why do I care? If everybody agrees that they want this case sealed, then, then let's do it. So that 76A motion is really important. I think the other thing to remember is when you sit there, and we use this pretty commonly, whenever you settle a case, it's typical that there's 
if you sell a mediation, you're, you're signing a signed mediated settlement agreement. Or if you're selling outside of mediation, you're filing, signing an informal settlement agreement or rule 11 agreement or an agreed parenting plan or combination. And that's typically filed with court. What we try to do, and I, and I know you try to do this too, Brian, is first off, whenever you have a spreadsheet at the end of a mediation, a lot of times I change the values to X's. So if you're thinking about a, a spreadsheet that divides up the entire estate and it's got the house listed at 700,000, it's got the brokerage accounts listed at 1.2 million, it's got the you know bank accounts listed at $5,000, whatever's in the 401k. When we're if Brian's on the other side of the case, he and I are negotiating back and forth. We're using those values so we know what what we're getting, the deal that we're getting. But a lot of times at the very last, the last deal before we sign it, I change all those values into X's just because you don't want somebody getting a hold of a signed mediated settlement agreement that's typically filed with the court. And then there's values on it. And all of a sudden I know how much you know Jake has in his brokerage account or how much Jake has in his checking account, or at least how much he had at the time that he got divorced. So a lot of times I'll change those into X's. The other things that you can do is there's nothing under 6.602, which is the mediation statute section that says that you have to file an MSA. It has to be signed by the parties and the lawyers. It has to have bold underlined warning that this is irrevocable, but it doesn't say it has to be filed. A lot of times I'll agree that we're not going to file it. And then Brian, can you talk to us about using, if we do that, using an agreement incident to divorce to divide up property as opposed to listing all the property in a divorce decree and why you'd want to do that. Yeah, exactly. And it's for privacy reasons is precisely the reason why, which is so an agreement incident to the divorce is a typically a divorce decree has, if you have kids, it's got a section about kids section that says you're divorced. And then the, the next section, the last section is the part about division of property. You can take that property part out and do an agreement incident to divorce, which just basically pulls that out of there. And the decree will say there is an agreement incident to divorce, which is binding. And it's in that way, you don't have to file anything related to the property. Typically, everybody, it looks a lot like a divorce decree. Everybody signs it. There's a copy for each of the two lawyers and the two parties and, and it's binding. If there's some type of dispute that involves enforcing that, if somebody's not abiding by it, then you probably are going to have to file something that's more specific. But I've actually done a bunch of those. I've actually never seen one end up back in court. So that's a way to keep the the money part of it private, but it doesn't keep the rest of the the case private. And there's nothing, by the way, there's nothing a judge can do to stop that, or there's no requirement or permission from a judge that you're allowed to use an agreement incident to a divorce. So that's a nice option if you want some financial privacy. Yeah. Because even if I don't list the values, if you have a really specific divorce decree, I can at least have in my mind what your estate is or what's out there by just reading the property that's listed in your divorce. And people, a lot of times I don't want people to know if I bank at Chase Bank or if I bank at Wells Fargo, you know, what my street address is, even though that's, you can probably look that up on the tax appraisal records, but it's just that add level of privacy. So really boots and suspenders is probably sealing the file, using X's and MSA, don't file your MSA, use an agreement incident to divorce. As far as keeping things out of the public record. We sometimes negotiate. I know, Brian, you and I have a case right now where we're negotiating non-disparagement, non-disclosure clauses. Again, just like if Brian and I are involved in a lawsuit or I'm suing a doctor and you know we settle and the doctor says, okay, but the terms of the, of the settlement are confidential. We do that uh, a lot of times, in, particularly for high net worth 
estates to say we're not going to disclose or talk about the settlement. As part of this agreement, there's people will sign non-disparagement clauses on it. I think probably last, uh, oh, well, before we turn to, to, I was going to talk about private judges before we turn to that. The other thing that people need to remember, at least during during this day and age, is that when you're thinking about privacy, there is all these hearings and stuff. Lots of counties are broadcasting their hearings on YouTube because they view that as compliance with the open courts provision of the Texas Constitution that says any hearing needs to be broadcasted on YouTube. Just on in, before COVID, before the courthouse was shut down, any day I could walk into a courthouse and just watch a hearing. It's public. So you could be saying through your two-day divorce trial and somebody could just walk in off the street and watch it. It, it, so that's why I think a lot of the courts are doing the YouTube and streaming those. I have found, I don't know about you, Brian, but I have found success if you, particularly when you're talking about children, saying, asking the court not to stream it on YouTube because of the sensitive information about children, particularly if you have kids that are old enough that their friends could watch on YouTube or that they could watch on YouTube. Most of the judges, I think, will honor a request to not live stream it, but you got to remember to ask. Um, has that been your experience? It is. And, and most people don't ask. And I think most people assume nobody's going to watch a random YouTube thing, but you can be sure that a properly motivated person would be doing that. And I think there's something about not, you're not supposed to record it, but if somebody's watching it in at their house somewhere on YouTube and they're not a party, I don't know how you're supposed to know if they recorded it or enforce it if they did. I think that's really a potential problem and worth, worth addressing with the court, who, who I think I agree will be sympathetic to it. Yeah, especially if both sides are showing up and saying, Judge, we don't want this live stream. And you have a good reason. And even if it's just financial saying we're going to be talking about sensitive financial information, that type of stuff. The courts have also been more, I think, done a better job at requiring that if you're going to, if you are live streaming on YouTube, that social security numbers be redacted in your exhibits, that account numbers be redacted because we're screen sharing during these hearings and these exhibits are popping up on screen share. For all the world to see and you don't know, I'm amazed how many lawyers do that and they just throw their client social security number or, or bank account numbers up there you know again where in theory anybody could be watching anywhere in the world uh, could be watching and writing down your social security number or bank number so you just really need to make sure that you think about all that stuff when representing clients and it's, it's amazing um, how many people don't do that and that reminds me going back to rule 76a when you talk about sealing the pleadings if you've had a contested trial that's also a good idea because those, uh, if you mark and enter exhibits into a hearing, those are public record. If I have a final divorce trial that goes for a week and we're marking pictures and you know text messages, salacious text messages, and we're marking pictures of kids and pictures of bruises or this or that, really sensitive stuff. And I think a lot of female practitioners forget that's public record. I can go down there if I know that somebody's had a final contested trial. I can go down there and I want Joe Smith's exhibits from his divorce trial. That's technically public information. And so that's another reason to really, if you have a contested trial, talk to the court about sealing the file at the end, or if the parties agree, particularly if there's an agreement, they can agree to withdraw exhibits. Or if you have particularly sensitive exhibits, you can agree to withdraw them. But again, it's just more stuff that I think practitioners just a lot of times they forget They don't think about it and they're exposing their clients to a lot of a really small risk. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that happen in my career, but there is a risk if you got to think about it, that somebody's going to go pull that information or or at least have the ability to pull the information. Uh, So lastly, I think this is a much broader topic, but Brian, can you talk to us a little bit about moving a case outside outside of the 
public courthouse completely and go into a private judge or an arbitrator? Sure. And for a private judge in particular, that's going to require the agreement of both parties. Arbitration, if you wanted to do it all, would be require the agreement of all parties, although there are certain situations where arbitrations can be compelled with, say, a prenup or something like that. Parts of a Parts of your case can be. And the reason for that is privacy. Also, speed and efficiency, I think, are other reasons. The downside is a cost. If you go to see the judge and you want to have as many hearings as you want at the regular courthouse, you don't have to pay the judge. But if you go to arbitration or to a private judge, there is a fee you're going to have to pay the judge or the arbitrator additional funds. But for a lot of reasons, that may be a good investment. If you can move your case along more quickly and don't have to wait six months or a year to get a trial date, that's helpful. If that's what you want to do in your case, some people don't want to move quickly, but some people do. And then the other part of it is, is private. Um, it's not going to be aired on YouTube or in an open court. Rulings and those type of things can be done much more privately and, and effectively. That doesn't mean that you're going to have everything in the file hidden or confidential. That's a different process, but this just keeps the actual proceedings out of the, the public eye in a public um, courthouse. Yeah, I think so. And there's, like you alluded to, there's a lot of reasons to do a private judge, a special judge. I think it's how the Civil Practice and Remedies Code describes it, but we always call it a private judge. But there's a lot of reasons to do a private judge or an arbitrator to keep that, keep you out of the courthouse, keep you out of the public eye. And we do that we do that for quite a few of our cases. And there's a ton of other reasons to want to do that as far as efficiency and access to justice and moving cases along. I know we have a lot of content on our website about that, but that's just, just one more option out there as far as keeping things private and keeping things as confidential as you can. So I think that covers sort of the wide array. It's a lot of stuff, but it's a discussion that I think that I know we have with all our clients, but it's one that I think is routinely skipped over by practitioners. And of course, it's the clients you not fair to expect the client to bring this up or know all this information. So it needs to be something that the practitioner needs to be bringing up and having that discussion. So uh, I think that's about covers it for this week, right, Brian? That's correct. All right. We'll see everybody next time.